This is the Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil discuss the latest from the January 6th committee hearings, results from this week's French legislative elections, the Republican Party platform in Texas, and whether the Supreme Court should listen to public opinion. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College, and I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Uh, we, we're celebrating a bit of an anniversary today. Why don't, why don't you tell the people what's going on? Yeah, this is, this is, I'm disappointed that you don't, you didn't bring me any cake today. This is a, this, the two, the two-year anniversary slash birthday. Of the politics yeah. lab. So it's been two years that we've been doing this. It's, that's kind of exciting. It's funny. Sometimes it feels like we've been doing this longer. Other times it feels like we just started it. It's a, uh, yeah, it was when you mentioned that, I was like, oh my goodness, it has been two years. Yeah, there should be like, we should have some sort of sound effect, insert sound effect here of like, you know, confetti and cheering <laughs> yes, or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it does. It feels like, uh, it, it does feel like we've just gotten started, but it also is hard to remember a time when we weren't doing this every Wednesday. <laughs> so. Right. And we've had a lot going on in the world of politics to talk about the last couple of years, which has been extraordinary. And, uh, you know, as we've said from the get go, the whole point of doing this is we felt that there was a role for political science in the broader political discourse of the country, but also the international system. And so, you know, I think that has been what's driven us. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun to, to think intentionally about okay what's going on domestically what's going on internationally and what can what can political science scholarship bring to all that so it's been it's been a, a really good experience I, I agree this is a highlight of my week every week it's yes. like <laughs> sitting down and not just it's so easy to just to get into like a news cycle of like hearing the news or but but to actually have to pause and sort of be analytical to think about it through this bigger lens of how does this fit into you know a larger uh, understanding of of democracy or it's it's a nice it's nice it's nice to do that every week and it's always fun um, to talk to you and and I I, I don't know I must we're doing it feels like we're doing something pretty well it's been kind of fun to watch it grow. I mean, we, we had, mm-hmm. you know, we brought a number of listeners over from the old podcast, but, uh, we've grown a lot, particularly in the last, you know, six months or whatever, we've had a lot of growth. So all our new listeners, you know, we're glad you're here. People who have been here since day one, we're glad you're here. So it's, it's, yeah, it, it's great. The people like political science, Phil. They do. They really <laughs> like it. <laughs> well, you know, along those lines, I think uh, as much as fun, you know, actually doing the podcast and having the conversation is the the prep work as well. Like, you know, probably listeners don't know, but a couple days beforehand, we start sending, you know, we, we text all the time, but, um, you know, ideas about the show and what can we grapple with and what are some really interesting topics going on that that connect to political science. And sometimes it's stuff that we pull right off the, the newspaper, but other times it's articles that, you know, as our listeners know, in foreign affairs or other journals where they're they're grappling with these sort of deeper political questions and and as a political scientist that's fun to connect those two worlds and so it's i think intellectually rigorous for both of us as well yep it's it's been great and and yeah it's you know we're we also uh you know it, it, i don't we'd, we'd love to hear from you right we get we get emails yeah. every now and then but if you have if there are things you've particularly liked or not liked um, you know, a, a birthday slash anniversary is always a good time. We've talked about different things we can do with the podcast or things that we could, you know, new directions, new podcasts we can launch. And so, uh, yeah, things that, that people have liked or ideas that people have always feel free to to reach out to us on, you know, well, here you go on Twitter um, go. At, at Politics Lab Pod or on Facebook at uh, the Politics Lab or um, the Web page, which is the Politics Lab dot com. But we also have email addresses tied to that. So Phil at the Politics Lab and Phil uh, Bill at the Politics Lab. Um, our, our email addresses. You can send us emails and we can, you know, um, we're always open to, to suggestions and ideas too. Absolutely. Nice, fun little birthday uh, anniversary celebration. So, still, so still want a my lot- cake. Still want my cake. That's though. right. That's right. Cake would be good. Um, sorry, today we're going to hit on four topics. We're going to do them somewhat quickly, 15 minutes on each of them, but we're going to start uh, with the January 6th hearing. So, on Tuesday, the January 6th Select Committee held its fourth hearing, focusing on the unrelenting campaign Trump and his allies carried out against state election officials and ordinary election workers in Georgia, Arizona, and the other states central to the 2020 presidential election. Uh, the campaign led to harassment and threats of violence against anyone who resisted. Uh, that included Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, who testified that he rejected attempts to create slates of pro-Trump electors in his state, explaining to the former president, quote, you are asking me to do something against my oath, and I will not break my oath, unquote. 
they also heard from Brad Raffensperger uh, and Gabriel Sterling, Georgia's two top election officials, who recounted a similar campaign to overturn Georgia's election results from Trump. Our listeners likely will remember Brad Raffensperger from his infamous phone call that Trump made to him on January 2nd, where he asked Georgia Secretary of State to find him 11,000 votes. Uh, specifically said, quote, this is Trump, I want to find 11,780 votes. I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break, unquote. I just, I, I still can't get over that that actually happened. Um, the hearing included some of the most emotional testimonies so far, uh, mother and daughter election workers in Georgia, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, who described how their lives were upended after Trump falsely accused them of engaging in fraud while counting votes on election night in an arena in Atlanta. Uh, the collective testimony of the witnesses demonstrated how fragile democracy can be, and that it was the actions of a handful of individuals like Bowers and Raffensperger who likely prevented Trump from overturning the election. Phil, this was another session where I couldn't take my eyes off the TV. So what did you take away from this fourth hearing? I, you know, I think the thing that has come through as through all of these hearings, for, I, I mean, there's a couple of ideas, I, you know, one of which is, is I think they've done a really good job of establishing Trump's centrality to everything, right? That, that he, that it wasn't that, you know, that, I don't know, this, there was this larger conspiracy theory that sort of ran away with things that he also got caught up, that he was like the center of it all. He was creating this. He knew what he was doing. He, he was told over and over that it was wrong. He understood the implications and that he was pushing it. And related to that is how like fundamentally I, I, how much of a like of a fundamental misunderstanding of democracy? It's not even a misunderstanding of democracy for Trump. It's that that democracy is it, it's like it's irrelevant, right? Like this is a game that he wants to win, um, and that's that's all that matters, right? And it takes me back to like we talked last week about the importance of a single individual, right? When you're electing someone, and you know the the role of you know, we've talked a lot about you know how the political science literature talks about the role of parties and keeping these sorts of individuals out, but also voters. But for Trump, the idea that that like democracy or the people's will should matter is totally irrelevant. Like all he cares about is winning, which is, you know, back to this, like, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break, right? It's about my team versus your team and winning is all that matters. And when that happens, it, I mean, we're going to talk in a little bit about the Texas, the GOP party platform. You start to see how that plays out in like your conceptions of democracy. Like it's not about democracy anymore. It's about a political game in which winning is what matters, not the principles of the people's will, right? And so the the the, the competition part becomes um, uh, uh, the the ultimate goal, right? That's all that matters. And Trump, I mean, that is Trump. It is personifying Trump. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that aspect of it, right? The, the how much it was all. I mean, ultimately, this is all pointing back to Trump. And from the beginning, long before Trump was ever elected, we understood that for him, it was about winning. It wasn't about ethics. It wasn't about norms. It wasn't about values. It wasn't about democracy. And we handed him the keys anyway. And this is this is where you end up. I, I, you, I mean, you were, we were talking before we came on for you, this yesterday's stuff, the, the, the testimony, particularly from the individuals who were on the receiving end of like, you know, you and I talk about it in the abstract about the impact it has on democracy, but yesterday was a lot about like the impact it had on individuals and that, that you, you said that really like that was powerful for you. It was absolutely right. I mean, seeing all of them talk about their own individual experiences. So it's much more at a micro level, right? And you're right. We've, we've talked about the macro implications for democracy, but then you see the way in which, especially for the mother and daughter that, you know, Trump and Rudy Giuliani were just looking for some scapegoat, right? They were going to target somebody. And of course they, they target a black couple black women to say that they're, you know, nefarious election, professional election scammers, which was not true. Um, and the way in which, you know, the, their lives are completely changed because of this. Uh, they relate the account of their grandmother you know, of some Trump supporters trying to carry out a citizen's arrest at their grandmother's, constant protesters, uh, you know, all of them, Bowers and others, too, that, you know, people showed up at their doors. They were worried about their own security, right? This, you know, Trump's lie and his attempt, to, to, as you noted, to stay in power above all democratic norms, it, it impacted people's lives, right? It, it really was a selfish act in that way where he was indifferent uh, to who this may impact. And, and so the testimony yesterday really kind of brought out that that individual level 
And I think the other thing is that you, that you already reiterated that Trump was told over and over and over that the election wasn't stolen, that he couldn't do these things, that these things were illegal, and he didn't care. And I think there was, at least I had some perception that there was disagreement within the administration, that maybe more of the administration was supportive of what Trump was up to in the big lie. And then when you get these individuals and you get them under oath and you hear what their story, you know, they, they didn't. They were very clear with the president about what had happened, that the election wasn't stolen, that what you're trying to do with Mike, Mike Pence is illegal, that what you're trying to do in Georgia and Arizona, all of these things are illegal. You cannot do them, Mr. President. White House counsels, you know, making clear that they don't want to be a part of any of this. You know, they were talking about the the alternative slate of electors where, you know, a number of the White House counsel said, uh, if you're going to continue to do this, we are no longer part of this strategy because they realized it was illegal. Um, so, you know, the last, I think I was mentioning this week, the last couple hearings have really made a powerful case for a cr- potential criminal indictment, an indictment. Who knows what happens? But yeah, I mean, I think that for me was was very, very, very powerful. I think you're right. And I think that's, that's, you know, to go back, we talked last week about, right, the different audiences, the legal audience, the historical audience, and then the popular audience, the people. And yeah, I think you're right there. The, the argument that this was a crime, that there was, you know, that, that Trump knew what he was doing continues to be strong. The, the reaching the people part, right. That that's the beauty of the, these individual stories, right. Where you, cause, cause in some ways, right. For you and I, we're more concerned with the state of democracy and big picture stuff. And, and, you know, like it's easy to talk, talk about like there, there are people who are impacted by Trump at a policy level in these huge numbers, but there's power in these like individual stories and to put these individual stories up there and to, to show, I I think as you know, it's, if you're trying to tell a story, a compelling story from like a TV production standpoint, I think that's really it's really effective to see um, how they how they do that. So I, on this notion that you were talking about at the end about, uh, you know, how you you had this impression, because I think I did, too, that there was more division, that there were two teams within the Trump camp. Right. And they were kind of evenly divided teams of the the sort of pro coup versus the pro democracy teams. <laughs> they, uh, and, they, they call them like t- team normal. Right. Right. The one right, group. Right, yes. right. And team Rudy, I think, was the other yeah. one. So <laughs> right. so uh, and, and it seems it, it seems more and more like, you know, the team normal was mostly the the they were the big team or the team democracy team was the big team. And and it was, you know, this handful of people, right. It was the, it was the Rudy Giuliani's and the Eastman's and, um, and certainly Trump. But um, I, are you, are you encouraged or discouraged by that? Because there's part of me that looks at that and thinks, you know, even in this pressure field filled environment, there were so many people who were, who, who said that, you know, this is not, this hasn't been stolen like that. The, the lie at the elites levels, at least, didn't penetrate that far. But there's a, the flip side of it is it only takes two or three, right? There, there are a handful of people who believe it, and and they are able to spread the lie. I mean, the power of when you when you start hearing these individual stories, like you can see where you know Rudy Giuliani starts throwing things out there, and how quickly these conspiracy theories you know build, and so. I'm sort of torn between I'm encouraged to see these the the stories of people speaking up and how disheartening it is that our whole system can be brought down by like, you know, one, uh, you know, a narcissist and some sort of crazy people around him. No, I think you're absolutely right. No, I find all the testimony that has come from, uh, you know, whether it's Pence's aides or Trump aides, lawyers, legal team, attorney general, all of that has made me feel better that on the inside, they were seeing the same picture that we on the outside were seeing. They were concerned about it. And they were raising these concerns repeatedly with the president to point out like, this is screwed up. This is dangerous. This is illegal. Um, that there was that pushback. Now, to your second point, it didn't matter to Trump, right? He was going to do what he was going to do. Um, and that is really, really scary. The impact that one individual, you know, one individual supported by Rudy Giuliani and a couple other uh, nuts, like that they they could have this impact and essentially one that has a lingering impact. Uh you know, this week, uh, New Mexico, there were a couple commissioners who refused uh, to certify an election because they thought the Dominion voting machines were, you know, were corrupt or whatever. No evidence, no evidence of this at all, other than the president told them they were, they were, you know, broken or, or corrupt or whatever. And so they wouldn't certify an election, right? So you see the way in which one, very, very powerful individual can can undermine an entire administration and go in a direction that is immoral, illegal, anti-democratic. I mean, all of those things. So, yeah, I think I think having those two reactions is very, very normal. 
I, I come back, you know, I, again, listeners probably know that I'm, I'm an institutions guy and the, 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 I don't know. I, I look at the American system in which so much power is given to one person. Right. And I know that like the, the founders set up all sorts of stuff to try to keep one person from having too much power. But um, yeah, when I compare like a presidential style system to, we'll talk about, you know, the French, the French yeah. system and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to reconcile. Like democracy is inherently a human system, right? And we have all of these, yes. these issues and problems. Um, but oh man, the, the ability and, and of, that we of, may. Oh, go ahead. No, it's just the ability of one part. Like we've talked about the ability of, of humans, right? Like people are messed up, right? And there, but <laughs> we're, we have to give people power in some way and like trying to balance those is, is, is yeah. I mean, it's the eternal political question, but what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, you know, along those lines, I, I think the encouraging part is that there were individuals both inside the administration and at the state level, whether we're talking about Georgia or, you know, in Arizona, who pushed back and said, Mr. President, we are not going to do illegal things. But I think I'm afraid that we're at a more precarious moment now where a lot of those individuals have been removed, right? I mean, right. individuals who were pro-Trump, you know, conservative Republicans, uh, nevertheless said, I, I am not going to engage in illegal behavior. I've taken an oath to the country and to my state. Those those individuals are slowly being removed from those positions. You know, part of it is a strategy of where the Republican Party is right now. So I wonder, in 2022 and 2024, are we going to have those same individual and institutional checks of individuals in those roles? And I think there's going to be fewer of them, which means that it's going to be easier for somebody like Trump or another, you know, a populist demagogue to try to manipulate the system. Because you're right, we're only as strong as the individuals in those particular posts. If, if Raffensperger had done something different. If um, you know Bowers had said, "Sure, I will, I will submit an alternative slate of electors," you know, then we're in a true constitutional crisis. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I feel good about the way in which some individuals push back, but I'm, I'm, we're still in a really, really dangerous position moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, we've talked a lot about how that what has happened since you know the focus on January 6th, but what has happened since then is again, at the state level, at the national level, this attempt to dismantle the checks put in place that prevented everything that worked, right? All the yeah, stuff right. that worked to prevent Trump from, you know, taking, you know, from like remaining in power, despite losing an election, he has individually been working towards getting rid of individuals who stood in his way, altering, you know, election systems at the state level. And, and again, to go back to what we where I sort of began with this is that the, the the committee has shown how central Trump is to all of this. Like the debate of Trump is, you know, is Trump a buffoon or is Trump, you know, brilliant? I, I, it's it's like somewhere in the middle, but he knows what he's doing, right? Like this oh, is yeah. strategic and he is single handedly yes. trying to set up a system in which he can, uh, you know, remain in power even if he loses an election. That's what he's trying to do. And he's he's succeeding yeah. in some way. And so, yeah, as you see, you know, state systems, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, altered in how they certify electors, as you see Trump, um, you know, pushing primary candidates who, who uh, you know, against people who were opposed to him or voted for his impeachment. Yeah. I mean, th th there should be red flags and sirens all over the place. And, yeah. and the, the crazy that you and I were talking before, uh, you know, what's his name? Um, the Bowers, right. You were saying that yeah. who, who said, despite all of this, I, this was my oath and they pressured me. He still said he's going to vote for Trump, you know, in, in the next yes. election. Right. Yes. Like there's like some, yes. some weird cognitive dissonance there. No, he, he actually, yeah, you're right. I mean, he says that what Trump did was anti-democratic and threatened the, the future of the country and then says, well, yeah, if he's, if Joe, if he's running against Joe Biden, I would certainly vote for Trump again. And I, boy, we could spend a lot of time kind of breaking that down. I know we got to move on, but I'm real curious about your thoughts on Kevin McCarthy. So Kevin McCarthy, initially, uh, Nancy Pelosi reached out and he had an opportunity to put five individuals, uh, you know, in front of the committee and what was it Jim uh, Jordan and a couple extremists. Nancy Pelosi said, I I'm not going to take those individuals. So Kevin McCarthy pull all, pulled all Republican support, said, we're not going to give you anybody. And that's when Kinzinger and then uh, Liz Cheney jumped aboard. This ha Do you think this, this is like a major backfire on Kevin McCarthy, right? Having no Republican voices other than the two anti-Trumpers on there? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th- this is a, there's an interesting contrast between Kevin McCarthy and like Mitch McConnell, right? So they're yeah. they're both like they're both you know I'll say problematic, which is the nice way of saying it, in in a variety in a lot of different ways. But Mitch McConnell is much more of a strategic thinker, right? Like he's yeah. he's playing the long game, I think, and and I think he sees you know Trump as somebody who early on he had to tolerate and work around and whatever because he's playing this longer game. But Kevin McCarthy feel, and this is partly the difference between the Senate and the House, right? But Kevin McCarthy is like much more subjective, subjected to these sort of popular whims, um, and and so it feels like this is an example of where he like plays to this base that is fired up right now, um, but he's not yeah. thinking strategically in long term because you're exactly right. Like you know, if if he had been willing to say, "Yep, um, I don't," you know, this is. I, my my voters, my you know, my base is opposed to this sort of thing. But the smart thing is to have a say and a voice on this committee. Yeah, he these these would look so different, right? If if you had to alternate between a Republican asking questions of oh, people versus Democrats, yes. like it would look totally different. You think about all the ways in which the the traditional bipartisan committee is kind of a zoo, right? You get one Mm -hmm. narrative from one side and then you get another narrative from the other side. But what we're seeing here is this is a committee speaking with one voice and it's bipartisan. But but Liz Cheney is a very different kind of Republican than your conventional Republican right now. So, no, I I am sure that he is kicking himself for not being more active because, you know, the narrative is this is a bipartisan committee and that, you know, it is finding truth. And boy, I'm sure I'm sure McCarthy wishes he could poke some holes in all of that yeah yeah well should we transition to france yeah let's do it Okay, so if we move to France, where this weekend the country held their parliamentary elections and the results have led to an unprecedented political situation in France, where President Emmanuel Macron's coalition has fallen well short of a majority, leaving no single party dominant in the chamber. A historic alliance of parties on the left, led by hard left uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, has become the largest opposition group and is expected to have 133 seats. Yet perhaps the greatest shock of the night came from the other end of the political spectrum, uh, with Marie Le Pen's far-right national rally winning at a record 89 seats. That marks more than a tenfold increase from the party's eight current seats and is an indication that Le Pen is succeeding in transforming the far-right national party, national rally, into a mainstream political party. Uh, all of this makes President Macron's job much more difficult. For the first time in 20 years, a newly elected president has failed to muster an absolute majority in the National Assembly, which could grind Macron's domestic agenda to a halt and shift power back to the parliament, which is really not the norm in France. Phil, these results are interesting for those of us who watch French politics, but I think they also have some relevance for understanding politics in the United States. So what do you make of all these developments? Well, I, so I, I mean, first of all, let's do, let's do kind of a very brief explainer of French politics um, for people who who may not know much about. There's so much; it's hard to do a brief explainer. But um, the the way the French political system works is they they have this system that's it's called semi presidentialism. So they have a president, and then they also have a prime minister. In the French system. Ever since basically, well, going back to the the 1950s, basically, um, has a really, really, really strong presidency, right? I mean, the president is sort of an elected dictator of sorts, just given tremendous power to 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 implement their um, uh, their policy. The prime minister, who's the head of the legislature, has is has almost always been of the same party, and so whatever the president says, the legislature, you know, the parliament goes along with. But there have been a handful of times that they call cohabitation, right, in which the president yeah. and like the prime minister or the party, the parliament, um, the prime minister primarily are of different parties. This isn't exactly that because you know he, there's still you know the the, the Macron's party still has. Uh, um, they have the most seats, I guess, still, but, but they, yeah. the, the, they don't have a majority, so they can't just, Macron's not going to be able to just pass whatever he wants. And so the power dynamic in French politics shifts dramatically in these moments to the legislature, to the parliament from the executive. And so that's what we're going to see. Um, and, and, you know, I think the bigger the sort of I mean, all of that is not terribly surprising. Macron's not, you know, a particularly popular president. There are a lot of people who I think he he won as much as he did in the in the runoff of the presidency, um, mostly because people didn't want to vote for Le Pen more than that. They wanted to vote for Macron. Um, the idea of like, you know, sort of despising politicians and, and protest votes is kind of central to French politics as well. So there's this anyway, all of that to kind of say that it'll be interesting to see, you know, Macron's job has become much, much more difficult. 
the part that that's really I, of all of this that stands out to me is the rise of of the of the far right here, right? Of national rally, right? Which has this huge spike in in the number of seats. Um, and, and there's a lot going on right now that would indicate, like, from a political science perspective, like what contributes to the rise of these kind of far right parties. There's there's a lot going on in the world right now. Economics, right? Economic frustrations and inflation and um, you know, price of, of, of gas and all this other stuff. There's lots of research in, in literature that talks about how, you know, during economic times, um, that's when, you know, democratic systems are the most strained when people are willing to, when, when, when the economies are in down, uh, uh, in down cycles. Um, you know, there's been, uh, we, we've talked about like authoritarian learning, right? Like what you see of these far right parties learning from each other. So, so the national rally, right? Marine Le Pen's party looks very, different on the surface, at least from um, Jean-Marie Le Pen, her father's party of, you know, 30 years ago. And so uh, part of that is this adaptation to, to kind of put forth, I I don't know, sort of a, a, a a more tolerable palatable veneer on, on um, a a party. Um, And then part of it is also about, you know, multi-party systems and how that plays in. But what, I mean, I, I want to get your insight. I, I'm kind of curious about, well, uh, why don't you, what's, what are your thoughts? And then I, I have a question that I want to throw at you, but give me your oh, initial sure. thoughts first. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you highlighted the really important thing that uh, center politics uh, in France, but also in democracies in general are struggling, right? So you're seeing um, a, a drift to far left and to far right. And I think that's really sort of interesting and impactful. But yeah, the mainstreaming of the far right is really, really significant. Um, you know, the center right parties and center left, you know, center left parties are for the most part gone. Uh, and the center right parties are struggling. And conserv- what, is, what does that mean for conservatism? It's, it's no longer small government conservatism. It's it's what we've seen in the United States. It's nationalism, it's anti-immigration, it's culture wars. We're seeing similar dynamics playing out in France. And as you highlighted, a number of the reasons for that. Uh, that's a really dramatic development. And, you know, you wonder how long this, you know, these systems of, of you know, can, can sustain themselves when you get pulled in the extreme. So I, I think they're experiencing similar dynamics to the U.S. But you, you had a question. No, I mean, I think to follow up on that, we've talked about this as well. I mean, I feel like, I don't know, six months ago, we discussed that really interesting article in the Atlantic about the four Americas, right? And, the, and sort of this yeah. shift outward on both both parties, right? In the Republican Party, this shift to the right, but also the kind of rise of this more sort of aggressive progressivism on the left as well. And it makes, as, as you have this polarization happen, it makes it... I mean, any system, certainly a winner take all system is real, which is at the heart of that's what France is. Ultimately, it's not like a true sort of uh, it is a multi-party system, but it's not proportional representation. But even in a proportional representation system, um, you know, that sort of like divergence makes makes governing difficult. And and it, it is really kind of it feels increasing like we're at, you know, as as a as a globe, we're as a world, we're at this point of sort of, you know, asking these fundamental questions about how the world should look, how politics should function. And um, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's worrying. So I, I, my question for you related to, um, to uh, Marine Le Pen and the, and the rise of the national rally is that it's a, it's a similar question to the one I just asked in the previous topic, which is, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Are you encouraged or discouraged by this? Because there's, you know, in, in political science, right, there's this idea that party politics, that elections, the nature of elections is that it encourages moderation. So there's one side of this that says you have this far right party and it did, it was not successful. And so what they've had to do to win seats is to moderate, right? To shift some of their rhetoric. It's less aggressive rhetoric. Some of their policy stances have been uh, toned down a little bit. And so there's part, uh, there's one, one argument that says this is politics working, right? This is democracy and that what's happening is they recognize that in order to win votes, they have to moderate their views. And so it shows the moderating power of politics. There's another side that uh, the, the sort of pessimistic discouraged side says, um, what what's happening is you're having these anti-democratic groups who are learning to sort of play the game in a way um, that that sort of disguises their true intentions. And, you know, my my I'll just say my you know as I was thinking about it, my initial thought was this is really discouraging. But then I thought, should I be encouraged? But I mean, hmm. what we're wanting is for these parties to moderate. And that's in order to be successful. That's what they've had to do. I, I, I'm not trying to argue for them, but like, what, what yeah, are your yeah, thoughts no, on that? 
It's a really interesting question. And then it raises the issue, is it a real moderation or is it window dressing, right? So it does, has Le Pen changed her views and realized that the hardline far right is no longer acceptable and so they're going to become more of a traditional conservative party? Or are they just saying things in a more tolerable way, but still, you know, espousing and holding on to those those core beliefs. And I, I think it's probably the latter, right? I think she's moderated a little bit. She knows how to say things that are a little bit more uh, politically savvy and, you know, kind of legitimizing the party. But my fear is that those those core ideas are still there. But you raise a really interesting question, because what we're seeing in France right now is democracy. We're seeing a center party struggle to keep voters. Uh, you're seeing the emergence of, of the left again. Like, everybody assumed the left in France was dead. Uh, now you're saying it's not, right? It may be the biggest opposition party. It may have a voice. And you're also seeing uh, the far right have a voice. So, you know, you are going to have some a real political discourse where those ideas are out there, which in some ways is exactly what you want in a parliamentary system. Uh, does that mean it's going to work out well? I have no idea, right? It could be it could be really messy. My, my guess is that you're probably not going to see a whole lot get done. But Macron is going to have to make some very strategic decisions. Does he try to ally himself with the left to get some stuff done? Does he try to... So the old center-right Republican Republican Party is still there, so he could kind of create a coalition there, but it sounds like they don't want anything to do with him. Um, does he reach out to the far right of Le Pen, right? If he wants to get legislation done, he's got to think about, you know, strategically, who does he engage? And at this point, nobody wants to engage him, the left or the right. So um, so it will allow and enable some real democracy to play out. What that looks like in the end, is it good or bad? I think we'll just have to sit back and watch. So it's a, But it's a really interesting question. I would have, my initial reaction to it was, it's all bad. You know, the rise of the far right, is it, it very much worries me, as we'll get to talking about Texas in just a minute. Uh, but I think you're you're also right to say that this is going to allow some more open discourse that may not have been a they may not have had if it was just a center left center right debate. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I it's I, I think even the the small part of me that could be like, oh, it's encouraging that it's like you know ninety five percent discouraging and five yeah. percent encouraging. But <laughs> right. I, I mean, ultimately, at the heart of all of this, like you you and I teach you know po- the rise of populism and you know there's all the, like we talked about economic stagnation. Like if you look at the last 20 years, right, where we've been through multiple financial crises, you know, a pandemic, the war on terror, all of this other stuff. Like, I think the underlying aspect that you see in American politics that you see here in France, as you see in all these European countries and places where populism is is rising, is this frustration with the status quo, right? This idea that the system is not working for me. And that can come from people who are, you know, burdened by student debt. It can come from people who are feeling like they're living in a town that's dying economically, but it feels like government's not helping me. Right. And so it's, it's interesting to see that play out in these two uh, you know, the extremes, right? The far left and the far right, which with a little push, both of those are, can, you know, become sort of anti-democratic, right? In, in their own ways. And so, um, I, it's, that is at the heart. I think that's, you know, you talk about like, this is democracy on display, but it's also democracy in the balance, right? Like how, yeah. you know, how are people going to decide, you know, is democracy working for them? Um, and how do we make democracy work for us? And, and that's, that's my fear is that we have a system that is not meeting people's needs. And so they're going to abandon, you know, they're going to, uh, abandon a democratic system because of policy problems that have not been implemented by various governments. So I know we need to move on, but I got a question for you before we do yeah. so. So we spent a lot of time talking about that in the United States, uh, that a multi-party system might be beneficial, right? That we could have more ideas out there, that you wouldn't have these big tent political parties. I'm wondering, you know, if the United States moved to a PR, proportional representation system, or, or a, you know, a semi-presidential system like France, we would likely see a similar result, mm-hmm. uh, where there would be one centrist party, and whether it would be center-left or center-right, I'm not sure. Uh, and then you would see a far-left Bernie Sanders, you would see a far-right kind of Trump party. Should we, should we want that, or might we be careful what we wish for? I mean, what do you think, like, how would that, would it play out similarly or different in the United States? Well, so, I, I mean, I, I, my, my, the, the preface, I should say, is that, you know, rarely is there, like, an absolute answer to something like that in, in political science, yeah. and I, there would be political scientists that would argue the opposite of what I'm about to say, but my argument is, absolutely, we should want that. <laughs> <laughs> like there are problems that come with it. But when you think about imagine a system in the United States, if we had a proportional representation system in which it did break into four parties, a far right, a far left, a moderate, right, you know, a center right and a center left. Yeah. Um, when it, with a proportional representation system, it puts more emphasis on the party, which Americans mm-hmm. don't like. 
But you have a party that then puts forth a platform like there's something that Americans love about the, you know, the John McCain's and the Bernie Sanders who do their own thing and don't follow the party line and all of that. But it makes governing and voting really difficult because it's easy to say, boy, the Democratic Party doesn't get can't get anything done. When, in fact, the Democratic Party is like this mishmash of a whole bunch of individuals instead of like a party. So one thing is it strengthens the parties, but even more so it encourages compromise. So like if you imagine that system, you could you could see a world in which the far light right and the center right you know, work together to put together a governing coalition or the far left and the center left, or maybe you have the moderate you know, the center right and the center left that work together to, to keep the far right and far left out of power. And all of that right. becomes more representative of the people than this weird system we have right now, where it's, it's like ceased to become about policy and it's just become about personality. Yeah. What do you yeah, think? That's interesting. Yeah. I, I tend to, I, I tend to agree. I think the the process would be better, uh, and I think it would it would move the political discourse away from individuals and more on ideas. Like we talk about policy a lot, right? When you run a campaign, it's all about issues and policies, and then but it, at the end of the day, it's about individuals, right? That's who we elect. So you know, a shift away from individuals and more to party platforms might might be an interesting shift. Uh, I, I do wonder. I think it would embolden more extremist voices in the United States uh, in a way that we. Well, I guess maybe the Republican Party is already there, right? So maybe this would allow for um, a center right party to actually have a voice as well. And yeah, no, it and it would cause some competition there. I think you're right. I I see that as a positive, right? So imagine that world in which uh, it, the far right is sort of emboldened in there. So. What that means is they're more willing to say what they mean, right? So there's there's yeah. fewer of the dog was. It's kind of where we are now, right? Which is where you know it is very much out there what the Republican Party. We're going to talk about the Texas platform here in a second. What the Republican <laughs> Party believes in. The problem is, as they get bolder, if you're a moderate Republican, right? We live in this world in which Republicans have so, so demonized the other, so demonized the Democrats that you can be, you know, what's his name, Bowers, uh, Rusty Bowers of Arizona face individual yeah. personal attacks and still feel like, but if, if, if the only other option is Joe Biden, then I'm still voting for Donald Trump in the world where Donald Trump can have his world and say whatever he wants and have his party. But then Rusty Bowers can also say, but I'm going to vote for the sin. I'm going to vote for the Mike Pence, right? I'm going to vote for the party. That's yeah. the more moderate version. That's a good thing, right? It, it's, it, mm -hmm. it allows those flexibilities. That's cool. This is maybe a perfect transition into the Texas Republican Party. Yeah. So last weekend, I, the, you know, I, I'm from Texas. So the, the, the Texas Republican Party approved its newest platform in preparation for the upcoming midterm elections. It should not be surprising that the Texas Republican Party has always had some pretty extreme ideas in their platform. I, you know, my whole life, there's been you know news stories about how you know whatever this crazy idea is that showed up in the platform. But this year, they took it all up a notch. Um, I, I've put a link to some of the key portions up on the web page, but uh, let me just hit on a few ideas. I'm just going to go through some bullet points of just some of the stuff. This is just scratching the surface. On elections, the platform includes a provision rejecting the certification of the 2020 election and claiming that Joe Biden... Biden is not legitimately the president. It calls for the repeal of the Voting Rights Act. It advocates for the establishment, and this one has not gotten much press, but I think it's one of the most significant ones, the establishment of a state-level electoral college system, which would use electors to choose statewide office holders. So people would vote in their you know, state Senate districts or whatever, and then they would you know, go and choose the governor, would dramatically shift power to the Republican Party. On race and immigration, the party um, removed a previous statement on the value of immigrants. They didn't replace it with anything. They just used to think the immigrants were valuable. Not anymore. <laughs> They've added a statement condemning, and these are their terms in their platform, anchor babies and birth tourism. Um, they advocate for the defense of the Western civilization instruction in opposition to Marxism and critical race theory. They argue that Confederate monuments should be restored. On LGBTQ issues, they already had harsh language about how it was, you know, ungodly or whatever, but they've updated it to state that, quote, homosexuality is an abnormal lifestyle choice and, quote, no one should be granted special legal status based on their LGBTQ plus identification. It also the party also opposes, quote, all efforts to validate transgender identity. 
And then, you know, finally, the platform calls for a referendum on Texas secession and then with no hint of irony also asserts state sovereignty over local governments on a wide variety of issues from vacation rentals to shopping bags to emergency orders. So we should secede from that overpowering national government, but also how dare you city governments stand in our way. Bill, it's not unusual for a party platform, which is shaped by the you know hardest of the hardcore of the base to be relatively extreme. But this shows just how far the GOP has gone on key culture war and anti-democratic issues. Notably, both John Cornyn and Dan Crenshaw, neither of whom are moderates, were attacked at the convention for being too progressive on on you know gun rights and stuff like that. Um, how much do you think we can conclude about the National Republican Party from a state platform like this? And in a state like Texas, where shifting demographics have started to make elections more competitive, is this a good strategy by the GOP or is this a terrible strategy? What, what do you think about it? What, what are your thoughts? It's, it- it is a terrible development, but I think it's actually probably for the Republican cause a, a good strategy. And I didn't used to think that, but but if we think about what is driving the base in the Republican Party right now, it is this like this these these culture issues, critical race theory, um, you know, guns, God, and gays. Right? I mean, these are the things that are that's where the energy is in the Republican Party right now. So if you're the Texas Republican Party, you want to double down on that. Now, long term, is it a good strategy? No, I think long term demographic shift is against them. But in the short term, if you're looking to fire people up, um, this is what you want to do. I mean, think about that, you know, I couldn't believe the pushback that Cornyn and them got for for right. you know moderate you know we talk, this gun legislation it is so watered down it is essentially doing nothing but you know trying to do something and even that was rejected and he was booed and heckled uh, Crenshaw again uh, he is he is not a centrist conservative or Republican he's you know he is a pretty all in Trump Republican but because on this one issue he was seen as too weak so so I think if you're the Re- Texas Republicans this is where you want to be and you see this is a good strategy because you're, you know, you're ginning up the base and you're playing to the kind of the ugly, hate-filled elements of the party. So, you know, as a human being, I'm terrified about this. But I think in terms of the the strategy, I, I am not surprised that it's being done. Now, in terms of democracy, civil rights, protection of minority rights, um, this is very, very dangerous territory. Um, and it's not all that dissimilar to what we just talked about in France. So, so what about you? I mean, are you, how do you read what's going on? You're the Texan here. You've got, you've got a pulse on all this um well i mean so i think i think that uh it is um again these party platforms tend to be more extreme than like the actual candidates are going to run on or whatever but the direction here is like indisputable right so even uh, they've they've gone from sort of a, a sort of a pretty extreme you know party platform to this again remove like the the two things that stood out to me were um i mean it, it's it it was the sort of attacks on like immigrants and essentially LGBTQ, right? That these two groups, right? Um, and also the attacks on democracy, which go hand in hand, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about this, right? This is about like losing power, like a traditional power base, losing power and the, the sort of lashing out at that, right? And so how do you maintain control in a state that where demographics are not on your side? You know, we're going to attack democracy. I mean, we're going to attack um, uh, immigrants. We're going to attack, you know, women, you know, uh, the gay community, all of that stuff. But also we're going to do what we can to make sure that the people who hold the reins of power get to keep holding on to them. So all of that to say, this is extreme, but it is indicative of the direction that the party is pointing, right? You see all of this stuff playing out at a national level um, as well. As far, so, I mean, like you said, this should be deeply concerning, right? I mean, this is, this is, you know, upset. Setting. Um, uh, the other part about like this, the short term versus long term, I, I, I think that's a, the perfect way of thinking about this. I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, in international relations, when we talk about rationality, we talk about this debate about whether people there, there's like this widespread agreement that people are rational. But there's like this debate about what does that mean exactly? Are people rational in the short term or are people able to sort of think rationally in a long term? And this is a party that's thinking only in the short term, right? They're thinking about winning these elections today. And I think you're right. This sort of all in Fox News culture wars approach is is going to be effective in the short term. It's going to get people fired up. It's what you know the base cares about. Um, I don't think it's effective in the long term, right? In that this is where again shifting demographic. This is like you know hemming themselves in even more in a way that that is is going to lose them votes in the they're they're just not thinking about twenty years from now and setting themselves up as a party for the future. 
But that also goes back to the anti-democracy stuff, right? They're not thinking about a d- democratic outcomes in 20 years because they're not thinking about democracy in 20 years. They're thinking about right, ways right. to ensure that the people who they want to control power are, are the ones who get to control power. And that, that means Republican Party, but it means on a larger scale, it's about, you know, you know white people getting to, to stay in power as opposed to, you know, immigrants and, and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, that, that's right. And as, as demographic change plays out and as generational change plays out, right? So younger generations, uh, LGBTQ plus rights are very, very central. Race is much more central to younger populations, right? So you're going to think about how can the party sustain itself in the long haul, but it doesn't matter now, right? Now it is kind of doubling down on the I don't know, angry white man dynamic of the Republican Party that we've talked about the white Christian nationalism. That's very much center, central to all all of this. It's, you know, pushing back against all the identity politics that we've seen, you know, emerge in the aftermath of George Floyd and LGBTQ rights and conversations, right? It's pushing back against that. It's pushing back against, you know, these sort of core issues that I thought the country was moving towards more consensus on, you know, gay rights, uh, thinking about civil rights again, right? It feels like they're saying, no, there is not a consensus. We're not on board on that. Um, So, you know, that also, you know, the big lie that Joe Biden isn't the president, right? I mean, all in on the conspiracy theory, which Trump's own people this week, the last couple of weeks have said is not true. So it's it's disconnected from a lot of what I think the mainstream culture is has embraced. So it's just a it's a really, really precarious, not precarious, really strange position to see the party right now. I, I think they're, they are at a, we are at an interesting place where the 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 short term sort of is meeting the long term and some meaning. Uh, you know, we've talked about demographic. Uh, you're, I think all of that. You're you're right to see the place where the party is, and and I think that is really effective. Uh, ultimately, this is a debate for the Republican Party about whether how much you're going to fire up the base, right, versus how much you're going to expand the base. And they're all in on the firing of the base. But the more hardcore you go on this, the the more you sort of narrow the parameters by which you can attract people. And so I, I, they are, I think, at risk of taking this too far, right? So, I mean, there is this point at which they're banking on, you know, the, the fear of Joe Biden is more powerful than people's concerns about sort of day-to-day policy outcomes. And and I, I see that like when I look at my family, when I talk to when I, you know, friends and family who are in Texas who are conservative, I see that this is working beautifully on some of them. But on others, it's like, you know, especially in Texas where we've talked about power grid issues with, you know, all sorts of um, there are real issues, you know, climate related issues, uh, uh, you know, gun violence issues. There's a lot of stuff that people are able to look around and say, my life is being affected. And all I'm hearing from, you know, the the GOP is about you know, whatever the trans, you know, the regulation of, of the usage of, of bathrooms by the trans community or whatever. And so, you know, I, the extent to which like how many more can you pick up, you know, by firing people up versus how many do you drive away? It'll be interesting to see. And I, there's a, they, I feel like the Republican Party in Texas still has some buffer room to play with that. But um, you know, as as you have a younger Texas, a more diverse Texas, that buffer is going to get smaller and smaller. So, um, yeah, where that tipping point is, I, I don't we'll, yeah. we'll see. It makes for an interesting comparison between the Republican Party in Texas and the Republican Party in Florida right now, where Ron DeSantis, he's all in on the culture war stuff. But to your point, he's also governing. And so there was an article, I don't know if it was the Washington Post or the New York Times this week. You know, DeSantis is very, very popular, um, largely because a lot of the like sort of bread and butter issues he's solving, right? He's addressing problems on the ground. Um, and it means that sort of the moderate the center is saying, well, hey, he's, he's solving problems. And a lot of it has been COVID related stuff. Um, and so they're willing to look past some of the populism. So he's finding a way to, to bridge both of those in a way where Texas isn't right. Texas is just like, we're all in. Um, and yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether the Republican Party fares better in Florida than it does in Texas over the next decade or so. Yeah. Should we talk about the Supreme Court before we're out of time? Let's do it. All yeah. right. So we thought we'd wrap up with a quick discussion about the role of a public of public opinion in Supreme Court decisions. Uh, the Supreme Court has begun announcing a series of decisions over the coming days that, as listeners know, is likely to include some highly controversial opinions, including the potential negation of Roe versus Wade, which is a story that leaked, as, as you know, um, a, a, well, a while back. 
Um, for many years, scholars and observers of the court have argued that the court was careful or is careful not to stray too widely from popular opinion. Um, and a number of Supreme Court justices have made statements claiming just that, that they, you know, remain largely in line with the public will, that they reflect the public will, that if it's not, even if it's not in the, the, the current moment of the current era, right, the larger public will. Um, but we now live in a world where the court has been shaped by 40 years of electoral politics, um, which, uh, has, you know, led to justices being appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote, like actually a significant number of justices who have been appointed by um, uh, presidents elected with a with a minority of the vote um, or people who have been blocked by a Senate controlled by a minority party, etc. So the the idea, you know, in the past that the court has lined up with public opinion is being challenged because the the court hasn't been chosen in the same or hasn't been you know, appointed in the same way as it has in the past. So let's talk about a couple of dynamics with this, you know, with this new uh, uh, makeup of the court. First of all, Bill, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Do you think the court actually reflects public will? Does, does that actually exist? But, you know, even if that's the case, do you think in like institutional pressures today, you know, is Clarence Thomas shaped in the same way that, you know, previous justices have, have had? But maybe even more fun for our discussion is the sort of bigger picture uh, question, which is, should the court reflect public opinion? Uh, you know, the court was designed to be isolated from public opinion so it could rule free from the passions of the day, right? Uh, how do we find a balance between a court that is too responsive to majority views at the cost of minority rights, right? That's the whole point. We want them to be isolated to protect minority rights. Um, versus one that isn't responsive enough at the cost of like democracy, right? right? They're out of touch with the people. So, uh, Bill, we've got... Uh, 10 minutes left. Um, you have you have 10 minutes to solve this age old dilemma that has, has yet been solved. Uh, go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. OK, good. Question number one. Does the court reflect public opinion? Of course it does. Right. Maybe less so. And maybe we're, that's where we could spend some time thinking about it. I think less so today than maybe it did a, a decade ago. Or, or we have to ask the question, what public opinion is it representing? Uh, should it? I, I, that question is equally fun because I don't think it's possible not to, right? Mm. These are human beings. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, John Roberts has famously said that judges are calling balls and strikes uh, and that basically that they are robots, right? They look at the Constitution and they interpret the laws. Uh, you know, the originalist and the textualist who say we should go back to the original document and what the founders meant and all we do is interpret law in terms of that. To me, that, that seems so silly because these are human beings. And what we've seen over time is human beings have changed how they understand the world, how they understand each other, how we understand race and the role of women and gays and all of that, right? Those, those are evolving views. And the court reflects those evolving views, right? I mean, because the Constitution doesn't speak to it. So we're seeing the ways in which, you know, our consensus and the public consensus about issue is influencing the court today. So I think I think all that's a lot of fun. Um, I do think that what we're seeing out of the court right now is is a much greater distance between uh, what they're looking at in terms of public opinion and where they are. I still think they're representing a segment of the public, but we look at abortion or guns, um, you know, church state, there was a big case this week on church states, money and politics, like we can see where the public is and then where the court is. And I think as time goes by, as that distance between where the majority of the public is and where the court is, that that has to worry John Roberts. It has to worry those of us that believe in institutions. So I think all of those are are really, really interesting things. So I am very much the, uh, a view that the, the Constitution is a living organism that people interpret over time, and I'm comfortable with that. What about you, Phil? I mean, you know, does public opinion influence the justices? What do you think? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's the yeah. one thing that political scientists would agree on is that the court is political, right? That this is a political yeah. body. It's about power. It's about, you know, making decisions about how power, who holds power, how that power is implemented, all of that stuff. So I, I, the, there's like, I think we have like, I think there's like a three hour conversation we could have just based on the topic, <laughs> yeah. the stuff you threw out in your, uh, in your, uh, in your response there. But yeah, I mean, I think you, your point is really valid that, that like the court couldn't not reflect public opinion, even if it 
tried not to reflect public opinion in that everything is contextual. So even the justices who are saying we are, you know, we're robotic and we're not, you know, we're only looking at uh, the founders and we're not listening to public opinion. Even that's like contextual. What do we mean by the founders and what did they mean by stuff? And how do we interpret what that, you know, what does it mean to be a, you know, a constitutional purist and what is meant by like, all of that is like shaped by the the day and the the era they came from. And so, yeah, I mean, it's all contextual. It's all shaped by, again, norms and values and customs and all sorts of other stuff. I I think we would be better off in in a lot of ways if we would quit pretending that the court was not, you know, political, was not, you know, influenced in some ways, because if we could just acknowledge that it's political, then we could sort of make some shifts and some changes, right? I mean, the idea of insulating the court somewhat makes some sense to me. Um, Lots of countries do this where they appoint a justice, but they appoint them to a nine-year term or a 15-year term, and it's like rolling. So they are reflective of changes in the in the sort of legal and political environment, but they're also, you know, there's this also constant sort of sort of delayed but constant updating and changing of the court. Well, you know, one of the interesting things the article I put on the webpage that you sent me this week um, talked about is that it used to be that the average Supreme Court justice was on the court for you know 15 years or whatever. Now we're appointing people younger; they're staying on longer. So we have justices who are you know close to 30 years on the court. It becomes the average, and so. That is like a different level of responsiveness, right? That's not isolation. That's like full. I mean, that's not insulation. It's like really isolation, right? They're like out there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the other part of this is uh, I, I think when you talk about is the court responsive to public opinion or is responsive to sort of, you know, opinion. Political science talks about the difference between public opinion and like elite opinion. And I see right now a court that seems really responsive to elite opinion and less responsive to public opinion. Right. So like, I mean, we've talked about like gun laws, the, you know, abortion laws, like there are some really powerful sort of, you know, lobby groups and elites. So, so that what happens is the NRA has sort of disproportionate power amongst the, you know, in, in Congress with, and with the presidency. And so that has this influence on the justices, um, you know, the, you know, whatever the federal society, Federalist Society or whatever has this, you know, disproportionate power at these sort of elite levels that has an impact. And so what you have is a a court that's largely in line with kind of the elite opinion amongst Republicans, right, but is largely out of line with the American people. And that also is reflective of, again, like we talked about, a system that like, you know, disproportionately rewards like minority parties based on the structure of the Senate and the Electoral College and all sorts of other stuff. So so I think it is reflective, but it's like it's it's not reflective in the way it's supposed to be. It's like the the right. the pressures on the court have changed so that it's not actually public opinion. It's like this elite opinion that has led to, you know, how the court is responsive. And, and that that matters as well. I, I, absolutely. Right. And as you especially as you think about the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court as time goes by, right? I mean, it has to, and I I think this is something that John Roberts probably spends a lot of time thinking and worrying about. Um, You know, if, if, you know, if a small minority segment of the country is just very, very happy with the Supreme Court rulings, uh, but the rest of the country feels like on issues of race and gender identity, all of that, that it's completely disconnected with the world that we live in. People aren't going to to see the court as a, as a legitimate institution, and you're even seeing this. You know, I was reading something today about. Uh, I'm trying to think if it was it was one of the Texas articles, but somebody was saying, you know, we're going to do what we're going to do, and let's see the federal government come in and enforce it. Right? There's going to be some pushback to say we no longer respect this institution, and the Supreme Court doesn't have any enforcement mechanism. Right? Its its enforcement mechanism is its legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know it raises all sorts of questions, and we've talked about this on the past, both on on the left and on the right, you know, uh, red and blue states who are saying, we're just not going to follow certain rules. So this is a, you know, potential constitutional crisis if, if the court doesn't stay within the parameters where the public says, yes, we believe in what you're doing and we're going to grant you this authority. That can be easily taken away. Which is where this court is become the court is becoming a victim of the same sort of bigger ideas we've talked about, which is a breakdown in like the agreement on the rules of the game, right? That what it means to be democratic, like it used to be that the understanding of democracy, the understanding of being a part of a society in a democratic system was that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And when you lose, you accept the, you know, you accept that, uh, that loss because you know that in the future you will win. Right. And so, and it's this idea that like, we're all sort of in this together. I'm not going to win every single time, but my opinion matters and other people's opinion. 
we've abandoned that, right? It's this idea that like my side is the only side that it matters. And when your side, you know, wins, then I just, you know, abandon the, the game. Um, and you're seeing that on both sides, I think for, for a variety of different types of reasons. But again, yes, right. you know, for, to go back to Donald Trump, when Donald Trump like is like outright explicitly saying that, right? I, I don't, I don't care about the rules of democracy. The only rule that matters is, um, I win and that's great. And if I don't win, then I will tear the whole thing down. It's not surprising then that a, a Supreme Court that is reliant just on legitimacy, right? If you think back to the court's history, there are a few instances in which court's decisions have been enforced, right? Through, you know, desegregation. But the vast majority of the time, people follow the court's decisions because it's the court, right? There, there doesn't have to be enforcement. We all agree the court has the right to do this. And it feels like we're at a point where both sides are at the place where they're starting to say, yeah, I don't, I don't have to abide by that rule. Um, and again, when that, like when people stop paying attention to the court, then like, it's, it's like, it, it all sort of unravels at that point. Right. You're right. And we talked about the impending decision about overturning, you know, abortion rights and the overturning Roe. Uh, and in that, in that, you know, decision, I mean, that's not the real decision yet, but Alito talks about this doesn't, doesn't, you know, necessarily impact other rights, thinking about LGBTQ rights. Um, but there's some speculating that the court could move against those. And if the court were to overturn things like gay marriage and, you know, workplace rights, um, there would be a lot of pushback from the left. And you could think about states like California saying, these are core rights to us and we are not going to implement that and and once that occurs it's hard for the system to hold right because there's no no more institutional legitimacy um it's it's a dangerous place so i think roberts is probably trying to navigate a course that he feels is going to maintain that legitimacy but he's a conservative individual right he may not he may not be the best to do this uh yeah, it is. It's really sort of fascinating, but terrifying. I, I I would argue that it's not it's not navigable right now for John Roberts, yeah. right? Because you your choice is to either support you know the conservative Donald Trump sort of approach to things or be delegitimized, and so the court has to either. The, the decision of the court is they either have to be political, right, to take stances that go against like you know, long established, they have to go all in on the politics as opposed to the sort of the precedents legal, like we're, you know, above it all, which delegitimizes them because they become this blatantly political instrument or they rule against, you know, they actually, you know, do the, what they're supposed to be doing, in which case you have Donald Trump and everyone else saying, we're not going to pay attention and you're, you're not legitimate anyway. And so, you know, it is the the way in which this sort of the poison injected into the system, um, you know, whether that's Donald Trump or Fox News or whatever, has its way of like sort of seeping into everything and, and that it's hard to maintain or to save a legitimate institution like the Supreme Court in this environment. I, it's like hard to imagine what the path would be. I know what what I want the path to look like, but if the court went down the path that I wanted them to, you know, a huge chunk of the country would, like you said, abandon them, would would just stop obeying their would. They've already started doing it, right? Talking about like it doesn't yeah. matter what you rule on guns or whatever else. Like I'm I'm sticking to my um, it, the court doesn't have the right to to tell me what to do anymore. It, it raises the question of whether there are core values that the country still has, right? Are we, are we more divided or are we more united, right? I mean, and I think like an issue like abortion, I think there's actually maybe more consensus than we think. On guns, I think there maybe is more consensus than we assume. Um, but but there's a lot of issues that are, are difficult that way. And and uh, yeah, well, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Um, it's it's our, we got to go get some cake. Uh, Phil, do you want to remind everybody how we can, how they can stay connected with us? Yeah, so go to the the, the website, is politics lab, thepoliticslab.com, where you can, again, find all of our old episodes. You can find information about Bill and I and all of that, but you can also, um, like I said, this week I've got links. I've got a link to the the January sixth committee. If you're wanting to go back and watch, if you didn't get to watch and you want to watch the hearings, um, you can you can find that there. The the article, I think it's a New York Times article that lays out comparing previous um, Texas GOP platforms to the current one. Uh, the the article that sparked this discussion about the Supreme Court. You can find all of those there for for further reading. So um, that's all at thepoliticslab.com and on Facebook we're at the Politics Lab and on Twitter at Politics Lab Pod. That's fantastic. Happy podcast birthday, Phil. See you next week. Bye. (laughs) Bye, Phil.